If you're innovating, creating, or making a difference, this show is for you. Welcome to Over Coffee. I'm Dot Cannon. Here on Over Coffee, we talk with artists and innovators about the process of changing the world in terms of what they do. When we think about how we design our system, it's almost like we're imitating nature. So when we germinate, we make it a very humid environment. We get those seeds nice and moist. And that convinces them that it just rained and that now is the time to pop. Vertical farming is a concept that dates back to ancient Babylon and that's becoming more and more relevant in the 21st century as we look towards more sustainable ways of producing food for a growing population. Los Angeles-based startup In-House Produce has a new practical application that is also both inventive and eye-catching. Andrew Bloom is the co-founder of In-House Produce. We met during Maker Walk LA 2019. Andrew, how did vertical farming first capture your imagination as something you really wanted to do? Hi, Dot. Thanks for having me on this podcast. Vertical farming is something that has been getting a lot of media attention for many years now. And I found myself kind of seduced by all of that good marketing information out there about how we can save a lot of water versus conventional agriculture, how we can grow 365 days a year, how we can grow with no pesticides and save space and grow closer to the point of consumption. So I was really attracted to all of that marketing language and so that motivated me to get to the field. And, and of course, the realities were a bit tougher than the marketing language indicated, but that's, that's how I got initially interested. Aren't realities always tougher than marketing? <laughs> yeah, unfortunately so, you know. It really makes it sound like it's a silver bullet, something that's going to feed the entire world and fix a lot of the problems that are systemic in our agriculture system. And, you know, to some degree that may still be true, but certainly not today, not now in 2019. The reality is that vertical farms grow a very, very small portion of the produce served in this country, certainly less than 1%, certainly less probably than even one-tenth of 1%, given the overall volume of produce that's grown in the country. And the reason is that vertical farming is hard, and no one has really cracked the code for how to do it profitably yet within our cities. That said, there are some promising companies out there that I think are, are really moving in that direction, and it eventually, hopefully, will live up to all the hype. When you say it's not as easy as it looks, which is basically what you've just said, what was one of the toughest things you discovered as you got into vertical farming? That's a great question. And one thing that we really have to do is learn from the mistakes of others. So I moderated a panel in 2017 with the three largest failed vertical farms at the time, which was Local Garden in Vancouver, Podponics in Atlanta, and Farm Here, which was based in Chicago. And I think between those three vertical farms, they lost about $40 million between them. And it was really a myriad of issues that each of those vertical farming operations were facing. It could be pertaining to their technology or permitting or fundraising or underwriting the real estate and the building that they were in. I think a lot of people really romanticize the technology aspect of it. And I've heard people say things like, oh, we're just going to be farming on iPads because we have all this AI and automation and those sorts of things. And people who say that then try and build the farm and they will deal with problems like leaks or pests or other contamination issues that 
happen in conventional farms, but also seem to find their way because life always seems to find a way. And so, you know, I think that farming is always going to be hard work. And even if, as we introduce more technology, we have to still be humble about nature and its ability to find a way. And so that was definitely one of the things that I learned is just to approach it with a lot of humility and understand that things can and will go wrong. With that thought in mind, please tell me the story of in-house produce. It looks as though things are going very right for you. I had the privilege of getting to see your vertical farming set up during Maker Walk Los Angeles. Would you start at the beginning and tell me where that came from? Sure, yeah. So in-house produce, our model is to grow food where people eat it. We grow right in the dining area of restaurants and other food service establishments. And it has been going right for us mainly because we do have that approach of the humility and learning from the mistakes of the past. And one of the other mistakes of the past, just kind of going back to your last question, is that they really try and build these vertical farms at huge scales. They'll buy a 200,000-square-foot warehouse, and they'll try and build it all out all at once, which is a huge undertaking. Whereas our units are small and contained and go right in the dining area of a restaurant. So we really keep a lot more control over our processes and are able to really monitor that farm with a lot of precision. But in-house produce, how it started, the founder, Trevor Hudson, my business partner, he just wanted to grow food where people eat it. And so he was really iterating on that. And as he kind of was thinking about how to monetize that, how to turn that into a business, he decided to start to pursue restaurants because they order a larger volume of produce and because that's a great point where people eat food. And so he started that business in Pennsylvania and then brought it here to Los Angeles where he was able to get the first celebrity chef to grow food right in the dining area of his restaurant. Now this is happening at Scratch Bar and Kitchen here in Los Angeles. It's a tasting menu only restaurant, 21 courses, $180 per seat. So it's really a fine dining experience where the chefs are very inspired, constantly fermenting things and doing molecular gastronomy and all these other really artful designs with their culinary practice. And we find ourselves inspired by the flavors and the cuisine that they're making, and they actually find themselves inspired by the work that we do and what we can grow and what those plants actually look like and how they taste at different parts of their life cycle and all the different flavors that we can grow for them. So we are bringing back the chef-farmer relationship in a way that really creates a distinctive farm-to-table experience. If Trevor started in-house produce in Pennsylvania two years ago, when did you come on board? So Trevor started in Pennsylvania, and then when he came to Los Angeles, he was kind of a, a one-man army. and. I saw what he was doing, and I saw the traction that he got at Scratch Bar and Kitchen, and I saw his ability to make a beautiful aesthetic design that really integrated the art and practice and science of urban agriculture. And so when I saw all that, I came on board in December of 2018, and one of the first things I did was get in-house produce set up to pitch in the Soylent Innovation Lab pitch competition, where we pitched our business and actually won a $5,000 grant as well as free office space for a year here in downtown L.A., which is where we met each other, Dot, here at the Soylent Innovation Lab when you came through 
during the Maker Walk. I was very much impressed by what I saw. It looked like you had a setup. It looked as though you had small crops growing in burlap. And the only reason I didn't photograph it is because people wanted your crops and you had just harvested them. So I imagine now they're growing pretty thoroughly. Yeah, exactly. We can grow over 100 different varieties of crops. We grow, for example, if you want a spicy flavor, we would grow for you a radish or an nasturtium or a wasabina mustard. If you want something that's more like cool and cucumbery, we would grow borage. If you want something peppery, we might grow chervil or cress. And if you want something sweet, we grow pea shoots or popcorn shoots. So we can really dial in the flavor and grow something that's going to really fit your palate. And so that's why these plants are pretty attractive and they move quickly. And we're talking to celebrity chefs and even just your regular everyday restaurant. We're talking to all sorts of different chefs all over the city. And they're all finding, so (laughs) we had no crops for the Maker Walk because we just had samples going out. And, uh, (laughs) you know, it's a good problem to have. Andrew offered a closer look at the comparison between traditional and vertical farming. Most vegetables are actually 90 to 95% water. Certainly tomatoes, lettuce, cucumbers, all of those are well over 90% water. And so if you think about what a farm is doing, you're harvesting that basically vitamin water and putting it on a refrigerated truck because you made it into a perishable product the moment you harvested it. And there's a lot more efficiency to growing on site because we just ship shelf-stable seed mats, which are lightweight, low volume, and then we take that 95% of the weight, which is just water, and we tap into the municipal supply. So instead of putting it on a truck, we use the fresh water that's already there and we grow the produce. So it's really a much more efficient way to grow when we do what we do at in-house produce. And in fact, your website mentions all the waste of farming. It also mentions, I believe, the nutrients being much more present in some of the crops you grow than in something grown traditionally. Yeah, that's very true, Doc. So when we germinate a seed, when that seed sprouts, seeds are packed with nutrition. They have so much nutrition because that's what the plant needs to get started in its life. As that seed germinates, as it sprouts, it takes all of that nutrition and turns it into soft tissue. And that soft tissue is actually, our bodies are very, very good at breaking down those soft tissues. So all of that nutrition becomes bioavailable in a way that our body can metabolize it. And as the plant gets older and progresses in its life cycle, it starts to make harder tissues, right? Like things like cellulose. That our body, we can certainly pass cellulose through us, but we can't actually break it down and turn that into what we need to, you know, metabolize and do our daily functions. So actually, pound for pound, microgreens can be up to 40 times as nutritious as full life cycle vegetables. So when we grow, let's say, broccoli which is a very nutritious crop, it is pound for pound up to 40 times as nutritious as the full life cycle broccoli. So even if you just sprinkle a little bit of microgreens on your food, you're actually doing yourself a world of good from a nutrition point of view. And we definitely want to, you know, help people find good positive health outcomes. And we know for a fact that plant-based diets are a great way to do that. So we want to make that more accessible and more fun. 
Let's look at some of the considerations that you have to work with when you're both designing the aesthetic of a wall of agriculture that's going to go inside of a restaurant, but also the science when you're going to keep those crops growing. What do you have to keep in mind as considerations? Yeah, biology and plants can be a finicky thing, right? So, for example, cilantro would like to germinate at colder temperatures. So for those, we would want our germination chamber dialed in maybe, you know, 68 degrees or so. But basil loves it hot, right? Basil loves it at 80 degrees, and basil just wants it to be a, a little spa, a little sauna for them to kind of soak and sweat in. So when we think about how we design our system, it's almost like we're imitating nature, right? So when we germinate, we make it a very humid environment. We get those seeds nice and moist. And that convinces them that it just rained and that now is the time to pop and this is the time for them to germinate, right? And then as we take them through their life cycle, we leave them in the dark, which makes those plants want to stretch and reach and find for light. They're looking for light, right? Because plants, they eat light, <laughs> which is a little bit of a funny way to say, you know, they do their photosynthesis, right? So we want those plants to stretch, stretch up, grow a little bit taller, just enough that when the chef wants to harvest, he can easily kind of put his scissors in and have a nice stem for him or her to cut and plate very beautifully. But as they stretch and reach up in the dark in that germination chamber, we then know once they reach the optimum length, we then move them up to the system where we give them light, right? And once they have the light, they start to build out all these different leaves and they start to build out their canopy because now they're ready and they're sensing that. So the plant is actually, in some ways, the most important mechanical piece within the whole system that we've built and designed. And we think about that constantly, about how does this plant behave in nature and how can we imitate that to give the plant a habitat that it can thrive in right in the dining area of the restaurant. And that's ingenious, too, because when you talk about cutting the light and then bringing the light back on, that more or less told me how you avoid having, let's say, six feet of basil growing every which way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. plus, you know, the chefs help us deal with that because they harvest it. And there seems to be plenty of demand for something that's grown right there. You know, if you bring people into the restaurant, they get excited about it. They're like, what is this? What's happening here? And they want to try it. And not just people, but especially children. You've never seen a kid, Dot, so excited to eat a vegetable in your life. They're just like, what is happening here? It's growing. I want to pick it. I want to eat it. And, of course, the kids don't actually pick the plant. That's all only tended to by the chef or by in-house produce. Farm technicians were all safe, serve, certified. So, of course, they can't touch it, but they can see it growing, and then they want to eat it, and that's pretty exciting. And we've seen with some of our restaurant installations more loyalty, more repeat business, because... People want to bring their spouse, they want to bring their kids, their grandkids. They spontaneously want to tell their friends about this fresh farm-to-table experience they had. And that leads to a better return on investment for our chefs. And we are driven by creating something that's practical, beautiful, and that's going to be good for the environment in our world. I have never in my life seen a child excited about eating vegetables, so that is an innovation. <laughs> yeah, hopefully we can get the kids eating more nutritiously, and, and that's something good that makes us feel good about what we do. You were also showing me at Make a Walk how you track the crops. Let's step through that. Suppose somebody wants to grow, oh, I like the idea of sunflowers. We have somebody in Redondo Beach, let's say, who has a cafe. They ask you to install 
a vertical garden where they can grow sunflowers. What are the steps and how do you keep track of those? Sure, yeah. So we've grown sunflower microgreens here before. They are, it's a great crop to grow. It grows relatively quickly. What we do is we put the sunflower seeds on our burlap trays and we get them wet with a solution that's mostly water, but a a few other elements are in there that kind of help spur the growth of that sunflower. We then put it in the germination chamber, leave it in there for about three or four days until the seeds have popped, and then they go up onto the system and uh, just wait until they look like they're in the optimum place, and you'll know when it's time to harvest, when they look great and they taste great. Wow. You were also showing me how you track that. If you're going to be servicing that particular display every couple of weeks, how do you know when the sunflowers are doing well or when, heaven forbid, life finds a way, like we were saying, and we've got maybe ants? Sure, yeah. So we have remote monitoring on all of our farms, which means that even though I'm here in downtown Los Angeles, there's a little camera on the system where from here I can tap into a live feed and look at your farm and help you diagnose any issues. So let's say there was a little bit of yellowing on the leaves, right? That might indicate that there's some sort of nutrient deficiency. So we may then remotely tap into the doser and add in a little bit more nutrients. Or I can diagnose and look at your your sunflowers, look at the canopy and say, oh, no, this is, you got a nice height, nice, nice canopy, nice amount of leaves. Why don't you do a taste test and tell me what they taste like because I think they're ready. The good news is that there's a lot of flexibility in this because the plants are always edible and there's, there's hundreds of them on each tray. So you can, you can just pick one and taste it. And we really want to inspire your creativity. And it's amazing how even day to day, the flavor can change. The look of the plant can change. They grow very, very quickly and they're constantly evolving through their life cycle. And so I would encourage you to experiment with it. Have fun with it. You know, it's not necessarily a right or wrong answer. It's just the creativity of cooking and gardening. And you just explore and let yourself be surprised. That sounds delicious, actually. Now, we've mentioned one place that's $180 per person, but a lot of listeners right now don't quite have that kind of money. What if somebody on a tighter budget is listening? Where might they get a chance to eat and see one of your clients who's going to be serving fresh-grown vegetables courtesy of in-house produce? Sure, yeah. I mean, that's something that we identified as something that we really want to work towards. We don't want to just grow for the target market that I affectionately call the yuppie, right? (laughs) We want to make this accessible to everyone, to schools, to just your everyday restaurant. And so we've been really working towards that with our efforts to productize what we're doing. Because the first one that we did, Scratch Bar and Kitchen, that micro farm, I call it our alpha system, our very first prototype. And that was certainly something that was custom and a little bit more expensive But we don't want only celebrity chefs to be the chefs who can bring this to their dining patrons. So we've been productizing the system to really bring down the cost. And now we've successfully achieved that, and we're looking to meet chefs and restaurateurs around Los Angeles. So if you want to try this produce, have this experience, I would encourage you to talk to the chefs and restaurants that you eat at, you know, get to know them, tell them about what we're doing, 
and we'd be happy to come on down and meet with them to try and bring this farm-to-table experience to your local neighborhood. What if I talk to my favorite chef in my favorite restaurant and she wants to know where to get a hold of you? <laughs> so we are in-house produce. Our website is www.inhouseproduce.com. My name is Andrew Bloom. I'm also on LinkedIn. We've got Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all of the above, and we are certainly out there, and hopefully we're coming to events near you too. We also talked about a potential direction which in-house produce may take in the future. From a financial perspective, we have been playing around with models to lease our farms, right, to really reduce the costs to getting started. And so I'd encourage your audience to reach out to us to talk about leasing if you feel like cost might be a barrier and we can just get started and make sure that you're getting your good return on investment and you're meeting your needs and your stakeholders are happy and go from there. A number of people were asking you at Maker Walk, how do I implement this in my house? And unfortunately, you're not B2C, you're business to business. What could, let's say, a teacher take away from what you're doing, maybe to share with her classroom or an individual who's living in an apartment in Los Angeles to put up in his home? Sure. So our solution is a little bit big for the B2C, right? We grow up to seven and a half pounds of produce per month in our system, that's a lot of micrograins for a single-family home to use. So we don't target the B2C market. The other reason we don't do that is because we need to do a monthly clean of our system for sanitation purposes, and we just want to have complete control of that monthly clean to make sure that everything is safe and in order. And so in order to do that, we have a service package that's probably priced too high for the B2C offering. That said, there are lower priced lower technology options that could be great for school teachers or just home hobbyist gardening. So for that, I would recommend the Hamama kit. That's H-A-M-A-M-A, Hamama. So that is a very low-cost solution that is essentially a tray with a preceded seed mat that all you have to do, no green thumb required, you just add water and put it in a place that has some sunlight or even just some ambient light. Typically, that's actually enough for to get some microgreens to sprout and get them to grow. And I think that whole solution, you know, is maybe $30 for your first grow and then $5 each grow after that. I'm not entirely certain, but if you look at their website, I think that's the ballpark pricing. And that's a really fun kind of more accessible way to grow where you don't have all the technology that we incorporate with remote monitoring and this big aesthetic system that grows a much higher yield. So I would recommend looking into that for the, let's say, hobbyist or just person who wants to kind of dip their toe into this. So the Hamama kit, and I'm going to guess that it would be something like Hamama.com, like you spelled it, H-A-M-A-M-A? Yeah, exactly. Once again, that link is Hamama.com. What's one story, if you had grandkids 70 years from now, that you would look forward to telling them about your work as a creator and innovator with in-house produce? <laughs> That's a really great question. I do hope to have grandkids, you know, 70 years from now who are interested enough in, in what we were doing and why we did it. Gosh, I mean, the story I would probably tell is about beta space, <laughs> which is kind of this crazy experience we had where... 
the founder of Soylent, Rob Reinhardt, he is an eccentric person, a very bold person with a big mission. And so Rob Reinhardt has been founding a new venture capital fund called Mars Bio Venture Capital that is focused on companies that have terrestrial applications here on Earth, but also that will apply to space-faring civilizations. So Rob <laughs> had this idea to throw this big party in the desert, and that party was called Beta Space. And it was thrown this April in Apple Valley on a property really in the middle of nowhere. And so we went out there, and we bought one of our farms, and it was in a shipping container. And all these people came in crazy vehicles, and some people came in helicopters. There were people from SpaceX and NASA and DARPA. And, you know, I found myself comparing notes with someone who designed life support systems for the International Space Station, for example, you know, <laughs> on different plant varieties and how they grow and how long they take to grow and, you know, just all sorts of different notes about aquaponics, right, and how we can kind of create a recirculating system all while DJs were playing and actually our chef from the restaurant from Scratch Barn Kitchen, he came out to the desert too and cooked for this whole party for, you know, over a hundred people. And it was just this amazing biotech experience where there was also like lots of art happening. And we even, for some inexplicable reason, we filled a, a Honda Odyssey, a minivan full of Tannerite and blew it up right there in the desert. And it was just this, <laughs> this kind of incredible moment where you just find yourself somewhere where you never expected to be and you're totally surprised. And then about a week later, it was on the front page of the L.A. Times <laughs> about how, you know, well, most people were at Coachella. We were there looking up at the stars and thinking about what the future is going to be. And now I look, project myself out 70 years from now. I'm curious to see what will come of that and, who knows, maybe we'll have some space veggies by then, too. In your lifetime, you may very well see people heading off to Mars with space veggies. What would grow especially well up there? Uh, that's such an interesting question. I have actually was at UC Riverside just last week giving a talk to some students, and I got to meet one professor there who just got a grant from NASA where he has been genetically modifying tomatoes to make the tomato plant very, very small. So it just basically creates very little biomass, very few stems and leaves, and really just makes that fruiting body, that edible biomass. So he's made it extremely compact. And the reason NASA is interested in that is just because there's not really much space to farm up in space, right? And I think there is something very interesting about bringing space to life by bringing life to space. <laughs> and so... How does that work then and apply to vertical farming here on Earth? Well, if we can just grow just the fruiting bodies of these tomato plants, then we can have a much more efficient vertical farm beyond just trying to grow all these vine crops and leaves and having to cut that tomato plant at very specific nodes to get it to fruit more. You know, farmers have all kinds of tricks, and I think we can expect to see, particularly for space-based applications, plants getting much, much smaller, and potentially also having some genetic modifications so that they create more oxygen, because certainly that is a consideration in such a confined space. That is going to be so interesting for anybody who's here in 70 years to see. As we wrap up, if people could only get one thing from you, 
and your work about innovation, creativity, and making a difference, what do you want them to take away from you and in-house produce? Yeah, I think the art, science, and practice of integrating urban agriculture into the built environment, into our smart cities, I think that's something that doesn't get enough airtime. So thank you, Dot, for bringing this conversation to the forefront. I do think if you work on smart cities or in the food industry or really whatever you do, if you work with students, I think this conversation needs to be talked about. And I think we have a solution that is small and accessible that people can actually act on and bring to their school or their office or their restaurant or to somewhere, wherever you are. And so I think food systems, you know, when people talk about smart cities, they talk about mobility and energy and water and waste. But we want to talk about food systems. And I think that's something that we can bring to the conversation and we hope to really make an impact in that area. Andrew, thank you for your time today. Yeah, thank you, Doc. This was a lot of fun. You and I have been listening to Andrew Bloom, co-founder of Los Angeles-based startup In-House Produce. For more information on what In-House Produce is doing, or perhaps to put the chef of your favorite restaurant in touch with them, get a look at their website, inhouseproduce.com. That's inhouseproduce.com. And that concludes this edition of Over Coffee. Thank you for listening. Listen to more Over Coffee podcasts at chewmavericks.com. That's two, T-W-O, Mavericks, M-A-V-E-R-I-X, twomavericks.com. And you can contact us at twomavericks at gmail.com. The music you're hearing is royalty-free production music provided by Pond5 at pond5.com. I'm Dot Cannon. Here's wishing you a cappuccino day.